Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. This music is brought to you by Angelo Badalamenti. He is the composer of the Twin Peaks soundtrack, and this is the theme song, as many of you will have recognized by now. Have no fear, I haven't replaced our intro music. I get a lot of compliments about that intro music, actually. But I thought I'd tone it down this week. We're going to ease back into things. I've been on a little bit of a hiatus. I had some technical difficulties with a couple interviews that I did. I had some guest scheduling conflicts. And I had some personal strife. Nothing serious, just the kind of thing that, you know, when work kind of creeps up on you and bites you in the ass. And all three of those combined to produce a perfect storm that that prevented me from releasing episodes. Apologies for that to everybody. But we're going to kick things off in a big way with a two-part series on Wall Street, finance, and socialist transformation. This week is part one. Joining me to talk about stocks, bonds, and bullshit is Zachary Carter. He's a finance journalist at the Huffington Post, and he's writing a book on John Maynard Keynes. Uh, Carter himself is uh, a Bernie bro, you might say, a good progressive. He's not a Marxist. He's not a a hardcore lefty. But he produces a a really interesting uh, contrast, I think, in the way that he breaks down finance on its own terms, which is something that Marxists and leftists do not do nearly enough. And this is going to be a nice preface for part two of this series. I'm going to sit down with Mike Beggs. He's a political economy professor at the University of Sydney. And we're going to talk about finance and economics for regular ass people and what it means for us to wrap our heads around some of the contradictions that finance produces for socialist policies and the socialist movement today. But for this week... We're going to be focusing on part one with Zach Carter, finance journalist at the Huffington Post. He's going to be talking quite a bit about John Maynard Keynes. Keynes was a British economist at the turn of the 20th century. He's widely hailed as the godfather of macroeconomics or the economic science as we know it today in many senses, at least in the qualitative sense. This was before the quantitative turn where, you know, algorithms and mathematics really took over economics in a big way. And nonetheless, you know, uh, central bankers and policymakers and politicians across uh, the developed world still use Keynes's frameworks in order to understand, uh, you know, economic and monetary policy. It's really important, I think, for socialists to wrap our heads around some of these theories, some of this history and these ideas so we can begin to have a collective discussion about what it might look like to produce a socialist transformation. And, you know, these questions couldn't be any more relevant and topical to our politics today. Right? If, if you think, uh, Adam, oh, God, Adam's back on his bullshit. He's uh, talking about dusty theory that nobody understands. Think again, uh, because a Jeremy Corbyn Labor Party is about to sweep into power in the U.K. in the next 12 months or less. Uh, the Bernie Sanders movement is on fire. It's taking over the Democratic Party. Uh, progressives 
and people who are to the left of the Democratic Party are have been swept into office uh, in the November elections this past year. Uh, 2018, we're going to see much more of the same. Uh, Sanders himself is gearing up for a presidential run in 2020. Should he uh, be healthy and alive long enough? Uh, everybody should sign up, by the way, to donate blood plasma to uh, the Bernie Sanders campaign <laughs> to keep that old that old bastard alive as long as possible. Uh, you know, he's no Marxist, but he's he's our he's our our best hope, I think. Uh, but in order for that hope to be materialized, socialists need to get very serious about thinking through some of the concrete policies and their contradictions uh, that would enable uh, a more rigorously uh, socialist transformation uh, in our society today. And so this is how we're going to get there, people. You got to bottom feed. We got to we got to we got to build the intellectual and political capacities of the left. And I hope to contribute to that. If you would like to contribute to that project, you can <laughs> head on over to patreon.com slash dead pundits and smash that subscribe button for $5 a month or more. And not only will you support the new left agenda and keep this podcast rolling, but you will have access to all of the B sides that we do almost every week. Uh, there's a lot uh, there. God, there's shit. I mean, it's 15 to 20 hours, uh, perhaps more, maybe two dozen hours of exclusive content over there on the Patreon page. So if you have uh, binged, listened, binge watch, binge listened, if you have binged on all of the episodes and all of my fantastic guests and you have no more DPS to keep you happy. Have no fear. The Patreon page has dozens and dozens of additional hours of footage for you to enjoy during your commute or your work day or whenever. So head on over to patreon.com slash deadpunnets and support the project. All right. I will shut my big fat mouth and bring you my interview with Zach Carter. Joining me on the program today is Zach Carter. Zach is a senior reporter at the Huffington Post. He's also on contract for an upcoming biography on John Maynard Keynes with Random House. How are you doing today, Zach? Thanks for having me, Adam. Glad to have you on. Uh, before we started recording, we were kind of yucking it up a little bit. We discovered we uh, grew up near the same area and uh, played in punk and hardcore bands uh, together. So here we are talking finance and uh, we're two former uh, uh, punk punk rockers. How did you get on this path to covering the finance beat? Uh, <laughs> well, how does well, that work? Yeah, well, you know, uh, like a lot of people, I, uh, I I I got broke and I needed a job. And uh, and as the, you do, yeah. When I was younger, you know, the only place that hired me was a uh, financial data uh, company called SNL Financial, and they were they're sort of starting out a new newsroom and. Uh, this was like 2006, and uh, you know they wanted a banking reporter. I wasn't totally sold on the idea of being a banking reporter in 2006, but it turned out to be uh, a pretty interesting time for banking. Terrible uh, for the world, uh, highly fortuitous for you, you might say. Like, it yeah, I mean, it's, it's a central problem with journalism is that things that are bad for the world tend to be good for your career. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so you never really know what to root for. <laughs> right. So you combed your hair. You you bought a suit. And uh, you, you hit the finance beat. Uh, you ended up at Huffington Post. You've been writing about finance and such ever since. You got a book coming out uh, next fall, scheduled for next fall, on John Maynard Keynes. So we'll be talking a little bit about Keynesianism and his approach to finance. We're kicking off a, a, a little series 
on finance and the stock market, of course, is a crucial aspect of that. And this will serve as a kind of primer. So we're going to we're going to talk stock market 101 type of stuff. Uh, but but we'll also get in the weeds a little bit because I think my audience really digs that. So a lot of folks will know by now the stock market has tanked the uh, unprecedented rise in uh, many of the indexes that we've seen uh, since last year, since Trump coming into office has come to a, a, a startling halt. So what's going on there, Zach? What the hell is happening over on Wall Street? <laughs> well, this week, uh, you know, most of the major stock market indexes, indices, uh, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the S&P 500 uh, are off uh, several percentage points. Um, it's it's the biggest downward shift we've seen, I think, in seven or eight years. I think 2011, there were some pretty broad fluctuations. Um I think for – I'm of two minds about this. There's, there's a sort of surface level of analysis, which I can, I, I can give you, which uh, I think explains the way most people who look at the stock market are thinking about why it's going down. Uh, but I think there's a deeper uh, level of analysis about uh, whether movements in the stock market really, in fact, respond to events in the real world at all, uh, which I think is also important. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think the, the short-term story is that the Federal Reserve has been providing a lot of support to stock market values ever since the financial crisis. Uh, It's done this through low interest rates. It's done this through its quantitative easing bond purchasing program, uh, the purpose of which was to uh, make essentially buying interest-bearing bonds less attractive uh, so that people would put their money in stocks. And the Fed is now pulling back its support. And I think uh, people watching that are quite reasonably concluding that the stock market is not going to be uh, as elevated as it has been over the past few years. All right. That's that's a great primer, uh, or not a primer, rather, a sort of we're starting right in the middle of things, right in the thick of it. As I like to do, I like to ask a question about contemporary affairs, and you know, we'll throw out a lot of jargon, a lot of confusing uh, explanations, maybe perhaps to some of my, uh, the folks in my audience. And now we're going to reel it back a little bit, and we're going to do some bottom feeding. So you mentioned the Dow Jones and the S&P. What the hell is the Dow Jones? Explain this to us. What, what are these indices? So we talk about these in various indices. Uh, what are they comprised of? What does it mean? Uh, what what what's the Dow? I mean, explain this. Uh, say uh, you know to my to my grandmother who 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 you know uh, sits around and watches uh, soap operas. Uh, my uh, main lesson here is going to be that everything is arbitrary and nothing means anything when it comes to the stock market. Um, and I think the Dow is actually a really great example of this basic theme. Uh, it's kind of a historical accident in a sense. Yeah. So explain how how that became such a, a hegemonic kind of uh, force. Right. I mean, the the keyword in Dow Jones is actually industrial. Um, Mm -hmm. This is a a stock market index that was formed uh, to sort of keep tabs on how industrial companies in the United States as a as you know, as an industrial economy, um, we're doing and so you you had very large firms like, you know, Alcoa, US Steel, uh, that were initially in in the Dow. Um, But that has changed over time. Uh, There are a lot more financial firms in it. Uh, Companies are added and subtracted from from the index over time based on just what the people who run the Dow think it ought to look like. Um, So it's now just sort of an arbitrary collection of companies. uh, And its value, I think we're at uh, Dow 23,500 or so. It's been around Mm -hmm. 25,000 in in 2018. Um, That number doesn't actually really correspond to you know, what the Dow was in 1970 or 1990. So there are different companies involved. So even though we're using the same name and using this number, 
uh, it, it, it actually you, you have to do a lot of translation between different years to figure out um, you know what the Dow in 2018 means versus the Dow in, in 1998. Right. So there's no you can't really plot anything in a linear fashion and determine exactly what's happening in the economy according to that over time. Is right. And we're talking about, again, we're talking about 30 companies. I mean, the S&P 500 is a little bit more of a um, is, is supposed to capture a broader slice of the economy. There are 500 companies involved, hence 500 in the name. Uh, but but even that, you know, it's only 500 companies uh, and they're 500 publicly listed companies, you know, private partnerships, uh, small businesses, things like that are, are just not included. Uh, and so you, you can't there, there is there is a very limited amount of uh, information that you can learn uh, even just about the movement of the stock market in general from these indices never mind uh, you know the, the broader real economy that exists outside of the uh, the New York Stock Exchange right so that's all very helpful let's take one more step backwards let's go let, let's bottom feed a little bit more intensely even for some folks. We're talking about the Dow. We're talking about the S and P five hundred. We're, we're talking about the various uh, companies uh, that are that are represented there. Um, what exactly? Let's take it by in term at the firm level. What is a stock? How does it operate? How is it issued? Who owns them? And and what does the price of that stock uh, mean in terms of, of of what the firm? You know, produces or what the actual value of of, of the firm uh, might be. Uh, a, a good, maybe uh, empirical example would be, say, uh, you know, uh, a company like Facebook, which had, which very famously, infamously, about four or five years ago now went uh, public and had this massive stock offering and and in a very confused. It's difficult to 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 produce an accurate valuation of a company like that, and so the stock price is kind of. Uh, floating about, what's the relationship between the st- a stock and a firm, and, and what, is, what does a stock do? I mean, I, I, th- I think the short answer is that uh, is, is that a stock does nothing. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but the, uh, the, the 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 more useful answer is a little more complicated. Um, companies offer stock when they want to raise money. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if you want to raise money to do something, you know, very few people just have a whole bunch of money saved up, which they can then use to go, you know. Open a automobile factory or uh, a bakery or whatever. You need to get money from other people in order to get your business going, and then, you know, typically with with investors, you pay the investors back in some way. So, if you are loaned money, then you know you get a big pot of money up front, and you have to pay it back with interest over time. Um, with stock, the great thing for the entrepreneur, at least, is that you don't have to pay it back. Uh, you give out the, you give out you receive money and in exchange for this money you give out this thing called a stock which has no inherent value uh, and which the investor uh, can then just basically sell to somebody else to turn a profit if uh, if the investor expects the value of that stock to increase over time now why might the stock price go up or down that is a really complicated question which has, a great deal to do with human psychology and very little to, to do with what we typically call economic fundamentals, uh, things like you know wages and profits, and things that are going on in what we think of as the real economy, the actual transacting of business between people who want to, say, buy a pastry and people who want to sell one. When a stock price, when, when a stock price goes up, the company that sold the stock doesn't get any extra money. When a stock price goes down, the company doesn't lose any money. All of those profits and losses accrue to people who have purchased the stock after it has been issued, after that first point of sale from the company to the market. Uh, and so the stock market is sort of this 
strange, speculative. Uh, people call it a casino, but I actually think it's a little uncharitable to casinos. Um, it, it's it's just this strange speculative process whereby people sort of bid on these these chits, these sort of gaming entities uh, called stocks, uh, whose movement really doesn't affect the it, it directly affect the financing of actual businesses at all. So there's a fascinating point there. I want to drive uh, drive it home a little bit and kind of get you to elaborate on it. When a stock price goes up, the company that issues the stock allegedly issues the stock never sort of reaps uh, the benefits of that. So why would a company want its stock to go up? I mean, clearly there's a, there's a kind of fundamental sort of structural argument as to why that might be the case. And then, of course, there's the phenomenon of, uh, you know, companies uh, paying themselves and, and each other in, in stocks and, and those types of things. So, but what, which, is relatively, which is a relatively recent phenomenon. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. since the 1990s, it's been particularly uh, popular for executives of corporations to pay themselves most of their salaries in the form of company stock. And this is a clever thing to do because the company doesn't have to take an immediate expense hit from its cash flow. Like the, the, the money that it's got in the bank, for instance, doesn't get decreased when it just issues, creates a new you know, uh, block of shares and gives it to the CEO. Uh, that, that There's no real cost to the company for paying the CEO that way. And then if the stock price goes up, well, the CEO gets to collect money by selling that, that stock. Uh, but that's, that's, that wasn't really a terribly popular way uh, for companies to... Uh, reward their executives until the 1990s. That's really exploded since about 1993. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so there is a, a, an incentive for executives to drive the stock price up for their own uh, you know, personal fortunes. But I mean, I think since the 1970s, Milton Friedman, uh, who's a you know, conservative economist from the University of Chicago, really popularized this idea that the purpose of a corporation is to create shareholder value. And that any other Pursuits for a corporation, you know, the welfare of a local community, uh, you know, the wages of its workers, charitable contributions, whatever, all of those things are irrelevant. The, the only thing a corporation is supposed to do is increase the value of its share price, essentially. And, you know, I've studied Milton Friedman pretty closely. I don't really think he has a reason why he thinks companies should do this, but it became it became sort of accepted within uh, within the economics profession, this was a reasonable belief, uh, and it has become totally doctrinaire on on Wall Street that this is this is how companies are supposed to operate. Well, it seems as though, and I'm just sort of riffing here. We can we can uh, broaden this discussion uh, a little bit by talking about uh, the role of fiduciary duty uh, mm-hmm. when it comes to this kind of. Well, you know, it's not sort of self evident uh, what fiduciary duty might be. Uh, right, I think it would also be very off-putting to many folks in my in my audience who would find it to be either amoral or immoral for sure. Uh, but it seems like Friedman's uh, notion that uh, fiduciary duty should be the sole uh, kind of aim of of uh, you know any any firm would would be that that enables this the quote unquote sort of free market to function most efficiently. Because if you take in outside external uh, you know, uh, considerations, you are in some senses warping the machinations of the free market as they allegedly, uh, you know, work in Milton Friedman's, um, you know, uh, I, I don't have anything nice to say about Milton Friedman, so I'm not going to say it at all. Uh, Pinochet, you know, excusing, uh, <laughs> crazy maniac sociopath that he is anyway. Uh, well, what do you make of that? What is fiduciary duty and what role does it play in, uh, in, in on wall street and the stock market? 
I mean, a fiduciary duty is is the idea that uh, a, a manager of a, of a firm or a um, or, or a fund uh, is is responsible for the uh, economic returns, I guess, that accrue uh, to people who own shares of of the firm or, or, or the fund. That that you if if it does not if if your fund or your firm does not perform well, then you have failed. Um, and in fact, if you <clears throat> if you mismanage funds. For your own personal gain, instead of the gains of your of your clients or your, your owners, uh, you in some cases have committed a crime. Um, and it, you know it's it's an important concept in in finance and in capitalism. You know um, the Obama administration um, over the last couple of years uh, have been trying to establish a fiduciary duty for retirement fund managers. So you know if you had an investment advisor and they managed your Funds not so not to maximize your returns, but to make sure that they got you know cool vacations in Bermuda or something um, for investing your money in low performing assets. Uh, th- this would be this would be illegal, um, and you know th- that's 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 that was a useful rule. It's now completely dead, and the Trump administration is going to kill it. Um, but if you apply that to the operations of of an entire economy. Uh, I think in Friedman's vision, you have this idea that there are, there are these different competitive entities competing to provide good services, and you just sort of let consumers decide what's good uh, and and what's bad. And of course, you know that's that's fine if if these competitive entities don't dump important costs and decisions onto the rest of the world that they don't have to deal with. I mean, the classic example is an externality where you can make a lot of money by polluting. Uh, not because polluting doesn't cost any money, but because the costs accrue to the public, not your company. Um, and this is this is deeply uh, this creates very serious difficulties for people living in a democracy, you know, who don't want to poison their children. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, who, who's to say that uh, you know? I, I mean. <laughs> Jesus, the the level of irresponsibility in that that view is just kind of uh, it's it's a little too obvious to even uh, you know uh, dwell on for, for for long. This idea that the market sort of operates in, in this ether without an environment, without uh, you know political systems and democracy and the rest of it is uh, only exists in the fevered dreams of of uh, Milton Friedman in the Chicago school. In any case, let's move on from these various indices. And you talked a little bit about the fed, the federal reserve uh, sort of exists in the social imaginary as the, you know, this kind of uh, conspiratorial force, you know, depending on what side of the spectrum you find yourself on. If you're, if you're an old crank and you sit on the couch and watch Fox news, you think the fed, uh, you know, is run by, I don't know, the Zionists and the Bilderbergs or something <laughs> like that. You know, some really like uh, anti Semitic, uh, you know, banking conspiracy or whatever. Uh, if if you are a, a liberal, uh, you're likely cheering on the Fed and Janet Yellen is like, you know, your super superwoman kind of figure. Uh, I've seen some memes that have like Janet Yellen like be as like, you know, uh, cast as like a superwoman mm-hmm. or whatever. What's the Fed? What's its what has been its role since the financial crisis, and and what is it up to now? Well, I mean, the, the Fed is what what the Fed is is a genuinely interesting philosophical question, um, and and it has changed over time since it was created. When, when it was created in, in 1913, it was largely established to be sort of a uh, a lender of last resort to uh, banks that get in trouble. So if you have a financial crisis, instead of having all of your top bankers assembling in the library of John Pierpont Morgan asking for bailout checks from the one financier who wasn't about to go under, you have a sort of centralized decision maker who's able to 
provide emergency funding uh, to keep the financial uh, system from, from falling apart. That's all fine. Um, but over the course of the 1930s, particularly uh, under Fed Chairman Mariner Eccles, um, the Fed became a much, uh, a much more significant institution in, uh, in American economic life. And really by the end of, the, of, of World War II, was essentially operating hand in glove with the Treasury uh, and, and fiscal policy to, to set the economic agenda for the United States. I mean, we have functionally had a socialized credit system um, by, by the end of World War II, um, where the Fed determines what interest rates are, so you know, how expensive lending is, uh, how available lending is going to be, what types of reserves banks have to keep against loans, um, and then how to access those reserves, whether they exist and whether they're, they're created by the Fed. So the Fed is basically where decisions are made about how much money there is going to be in the economy and how it's going to circulate through the economy. Right. So what you're talking about there is essentially the, the, what's called the Treasury Fed Accord. Yes. Happened in the late 40s, early 50s, um, where there was this connection between uh, the Treasury and the Fed such that, uh, yes, I mean, because a lot of people, what I'm getting to is a lot of people are happy to point out, particularly those on the right, the conspiratorial right, are happy to point out that the Federal Reserve is not technically a government entity, right? It's a collection of private banks. And yet they have such an important role in uh, setting public policy and particularly through their relationship with the U.S. Treasury, which clearly is a government agency. It's a public-private hybrid. I mean, the the Federal Reserve Board of Governors in Washington, D.C. is is a government entity, but the private sector has direct, direct influence on some of the policymaking committees, especially the Federal Open Market Committee, which is the the team that sets interest rates um, through mm-hmm. through the banking sector, so uh, it, it's I think it's wrong to say that it's not a, a government agency, but it's also right. wrong to say that it's a purely public entity. And that's kind of the nature of our banking system in general. I would say it's it's that sort of it it sits. Uh, at the intersection of public and private as money and, and, and fiat currency and, and uh, a private banking system necessarily will. Uh, so uh, let's break that down a little bit. You talked about the uh, the open market committee uh, setting interest rates. They've been vital in uh, things like uh, quantitative easing coming out of the Great Recession. So what role has quantitative easing and some of these other uh, these other shenanigans that you talked about yeah. earlier in the interview, uh, what role has that played since uh, since the Great Recession? Well, depending on what school of economic thought you subscribe to, quantitative easing has either had a modest impact or been you know really crucial and essential. But the idea behind quantitative easing is that um, the Fed is purchasing bonds in the open market from from banking institutions uh, in order to drive down interest rates on bonds and make them less attractive for banks, hoping that they will swap out investments in bonds for investments in stocks. Um, the reason you would do that is because you, you want, uh, you want people to borrow money at lower rates. You want to bring down interest rates so that if, if, if I want to start a bakery and get a loan, I can afford one. My financing costs are lower. I have more money to distribute to workers or to keep for myself in the in form of profits. Uh, less money that's being captured by uh, rentiers charging charging interest. The Fed has really been the overwhelming source of economic support since the 2008 financial crisis. Um, mm-hmm. There was a stimulus bill that was passed in 2009, which uh, moved 
you know, something like $600 billion in tax cuts and $300 billion in spending in, into the economy, um, which kept things from really falling apart. Uh, but the Fed's decision to keep interest rates very, very low for a very long time has been the dominant policy response to the crash. And at, typically after a financial crisis, you have banks refusing to lend out money because they're afraid they're going to go out of business. Um, and so as a result, you have a lot of businesses actually going out of business because they can't get access to the money they need to just continue their operations. You know, debt in commerce is very different from personal debt. Uh, you could be running a very, very profitable operation while constantly churning through a great deal of debt. You know, you borrow money one week to meet your payroll, you pay your workers, you get, uh, you know, you get a, a payment for a contract or something later on, you're making tons of money, but you're constantly rolling over a lot of debt. Uh, if you cut off that supply of credit, your business just has to stop. And that means your workers are laid off uh, and whatever skills that they've acquired, unless they can go find another similar business to employ them right away, uh, kind of go to waste. Right, right, right. So there's, we live in a just-in-time economy, not only with supply chains, but also with access to credit. Uh, any, 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 uh, a disruption in those flows of credit can can have immediate impacts on just the day to day operations of, of of companies. I think that's important for progressives and liberals and socialists to keep in mind um, when we sort of cheer on uh, these various slumps and things like that. So yeah, sorry, sorry, just to kind of uh, highlight the uh, importance of that. I should say I think a lot of people assume they have these slush funds that they sort of you know pull from in times of need, but that's just really not how things work. So. Yeah, sorry. Uh, continue. No, I mean, you know, I, th- I think you, know, you mentioned Janet Yellen earlier. I think I think it's very clear that Janet Yellen's been the best uh, Fed chair in in half a century. You know, we haven't had a massive crisis on her watch. Uh, unemployment has steadily improved, uh, and wages are starting to sort of get a little better. But being the best Fed chair in half a century isn't a very high bar to clear. Uh, pretty much every Fed share since the 70s has been a disaster. Uh, <laughs> Alan Greenspan is a brilliant man who is um, an acolyte of, uh, of Ayn Rand. The, uh, people refer to Ayn Rand as a architect of free market capitalism. She's not. She's uh, a philosopher who embraces uh, a doctrine of radical selfishness. Um, she literally has a book called The Virtues of Selfishness, which is about how, right. not, not how capitalism is good, uh, but about how giving to charity and helping people in need is bad because it just encourages weakness. Um, and by the way, she herself has, it's recently been revealed, uh, you know, benefited from various uh, forms of government largesse throughout her lifetime. Uh, which, which, is why, which is why her, her <laughs> radical selfishness uh, philosophy is perfectly consistent. It's only inconsistent if you think of her as, as a social theorist who's concerned about uh, the general welfare and the role of government. Um, That's right. But, uh, but so Alan Greenspan is an acolyte of, of Ayn Rand. Uh, he was chairman of the Federal Reserve for uh, – very long time, like 1987 until 2006, um, under both under Reagan, Bush, uh, Clinton, uh, and and the other Bush. Um, and during his tenure at the Fed, was generally credited. They, they called him uh, his nickname was Maestro. He was generally credited for being this economic genius who had uh, secured long periods of prosperity with only minor recessions and uh, general general good feeling for, for everyone involved. Um, and I think that perspective is largely the result of 
the Fed being covered by a DC press corps, which is largely inoculated from the big swings of economic downturns. I, I think if you mm. if you look at public polling from the end of the Clinton administration, for instance, when everything was supposed to be really just roaring and good, most people uh, believed that their bosses were cheating them. It was a Business Week poll from like 1999 or 2000. I can't remember which. Huh. It's, it's like 61% say they think their boss is cheating them. So the, the economy wasn't uh, – it, it, it was – it was not crashing, but it was still deeply inegalitarian, um, and and there were real signs that things were were not going quite right. And this culminated in the the dot com crash in two thousand one, uh, which we sort of got out of by, I think I think it's the, the conventional story now is basically true by um, encouraging people to buy stuff with new housing debt, um, and this is the origin of the housing bubble, which burst in two thousand eight. Um, so y- you cannot separate Greenspan's legacy from the 2008 crash. Um, and prior to Greenspan, you have Paul Volcker, who intentionally created an absolutely devastating recession in the early 1980s uh, in order to break inflation. Um, whatever, whatever your policy path is, if you create double-digit unemployment and you are an economic manager, you have failed. Um, so Volcker was a pretty catastrophic failure. Uh, and then we had the 2008 crash. So things have been really bad uh, for a long time. And even before Volcker, you, know, you have the stagflation problems of the 1970s. Those were not good either. You have, we have high unemployment, not quite double digits, but double digit inflation. Uh, that's, that's not a good situation either. So there's been a lot of really bad macroeconomic management in the United States. And you know we'll see what Janet Yellen's legacy ultimately is this, with the stock market declining now. Uh, you know, it, it's very clear that the sort of uh, more difficult aspects of her uh, tenure are, are in the future. Um, but certainly while she was in, in office, um, she didn't do anything catastrophic <laughs> and, she, and she inherited a real catastrophe. So, I mean, this is really this is really good ground we're covering here because I'm going to have on some guests in the coming weeks who are going to not necessarily certainly not disagree with the assessment you just gave there. I'm not I promise you I'm not going to bring on a guy who's going to try to resuscitate Volcker as like a man of the people. <laughs> <laughs> However, like, you know, the, their emphasis being, say, uh, political economists or sociologists, they're going to look at the Volcker shock as a kind of structural transformation mm-hmm. uh, in the broader, uh, you know, political and economic sort of sphere. I'm sure you have that sort of critique well under your belt. Um, but, uh, but but this is good that we're talking about it just in terms of their role as a Fed chair, what Fed uh, chairs do and how that impacts the economy. Uh, Greenspan notoriously was kind of uh, he took on the role as the firefighter in chief, if you will. He sort of uh, let the market rip and roar until it crashed. And then he'd sort of uh, orchestrate these bailouts. Uh, which we saw him kind of come to Congress with his hat in his hand as, a, as an old man saying, you know, my, my, my view of the world as I have known it uh, my entire lifetime is crumbling, you know, before my very eyes and I no longer know which way is up or down. Uh, almost kind of pitied the man in that moment. I'll, I'll try to find that clip that Greenspan sort of like uh, admits he has no idea what the fuck is going on. <laughs> you have the authority to prevent irresponsible lending practices that led to the subprime mortgage crisis. You were advised to do so by many others. And now our whole economy is paying its price. Do you feel that your ideology pushed you to make decisions that you wish you had not made? Well, remember that what an ideology is, is a conceptual framework with the way people deal with reality. Everyone has one. You have to, to exist, you need an ideology. The question is whether it is accurate or not. 
And what I'm saying to you is, yes, I found a flaw. I don't know how significant or permanent it is, but I've been very distressed by that fact. May, may I just finish an answer to the, the question previously? You found a flaw in a the flaw, reality? A flaw in the model that I perceived is the critical functioning structure that defines how the world works, so to speak. In other words, you found that your, your view of the world, your ideology, was not right. It was that, not that working. Is, it had a, like, precisely. No, I, that's precisely the reason I was shocked, because I've been going for 40 years or more with very considerable evidence that it was working exceptionally well. I'm gonna, I, I, don't, I don't have a lot of nice things to say about Alan Greenspan, but I, I do think it's important that he did say that and that you will not see many top economic policymakers acknowledge getting something wrong. Um, well, there was a moment there. I mean, you, we, we were talking off air as well, actually, not only about our history in punk bands, but about our uh, the way in which we've both uh, respectively sort of dove headfirst into these this industry of bankers memoirs that came out following the 2008 crisis. I mean, there's just, you know, every every anybody who's anybody who worked at a bank or was a central banker or like, I don't know, fucking filed, uh, you know, Hank Paulson's papers, you know, during the crisis now has a memoir. Yes. And they all say that, oh, my God, it's amazing. Everybody except me was totally wrong about the financial crisis. <laughs> right. I mean, you go through Tim Geithner's uh, biography or memoir stress test. I mean, he yep, blames yep. pretty much everybody. Except for him. <laughs> right. Except for him. But I think the, 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 that's true. That's very true. But the consistent theme that you get in those memoirs and those accounts is, is, the, is the fact that there was a certain kind of like radical honesty and soul searching that happened during that time because it really did feel like uh, the end of the world was, was not, you know? And so pe- people really had this kind of introspective view that was, that's very, it's it's a it's a it's a big departure from the typical kind of uh, you know chest thumping uh, bravado that you get from central bankers. No, oh, and and the Democratic Party, to be clear, is still dealing with the ideological fallout from from that. I mean, there there was a sense during the Clinton years and afterwards that the old version of sort of um, organized labor based New Deal style liberalism was over, and that instead there was going to be some sort of uh, rapprochement with the financial sector um, in which you know you, you were going to have a, a kinder gentler capitalism run by financial elites who just had better views about uh, you know say race and gender equality um, than the financial sectors of the 40s and 50s had um, and and the, the crisis really shattered that 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 idea and and the party has not really figured out what to replace it with yet and a lot of a lot of what's happening I think in the sort of you know Bernie Sanders Hillary Clinton factional uh, warfare that still goes on. A lot of that I think is just about partisan divisions, but there really is an ideological void that that needs to be filled, uh, and and the party hasn't figured out what it's you know what it wants to do yet. All right. So in that respect, let's talk a little bit about Janet Yellen's term uh, as as the chair of the Federal Reserve, uh, her her kind of uh, views on quantitative easing. Um, and because she really is kind of the Obama, at least, you know, in, in some senses, Obama's perspective, Obama's uh, flavor on how markets uh, should operate, I think. 
Obama was, you know, appointed Yellen and and uh, has been reluctantly though, reluctantly appointed Janet Yellen. He wanted to appoint Larry Summers, who had been Treasury Secretary under Bill Clinton and an architect of a lot of the financial deregulation in the 1990s. Um, but uh, he ran into five senators on the Senate Banking Committee who wouldn't, who were Democrats, who wouldn't for, put forward Larry Summers' nomination. Um, but that said, yeah, I, I think Janet Yellen is Janet Yellen, somebody who, who, who like Obama, uh, you know, came of age as a not just influenced by, but was actively participating in the decisions of the 1990s, which sort of brought the Democratic Party and liberalism in general, you know, away from organized labor and towards. Uh, the financial sector, and she was supportive of North American Free Trade Agreement, uh, tepidly supported the repeal of Glass-Steagall, the New Deal separation between uh, commercial banking and securities trading. Uh, you know, she was she's a very conventional uh, Democrat in a, in a lot of ways, but she wasn't an arch deregulatory idol ideologue. Mm-hmm. So she sits. She's kind of straddles that line, right? She's the 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 kind of uh, picturesque, uh, the classic triangulationist uh, of the 1990s, the Bill Clinton wing of the Democratic Party, the, the third way, where where yeah, she she has some kind of tepid, I don't know, remarks, criticisms of Glass Steagall on the one hand, but on the other hand, she's you know very pro free trade and and uh, she's a maybe a, a Paul Krugman liberal. Would that be? I, that, that's say, I'd say Paul. Uh, yeah, I think Paul Krugman's a very a very good uh, parallel. You know. Someone who um, has come of age in the, if you remember the economics profession, um, this was a very conservative world uh, from the 1960s on. And, uh, you know, particularly after the 1970s, they didn't even really teach Keynesian economics, much less the sort of, you know, Marxist stuff that you've been uh, hinting at throughout the podcast. So, so, you know, this this is not a world where um, those types of ideas are, are even discussed, much less. Uh, taken seriously, and, and so within within the perspective, you know, the ideological spectrum represented by the economics profession, uh, you know, Yellen is certainly sort of towards the the more liberal end of things, and and there, it's very strange. There's a serious debate in um, it has been a serious debate in economics since the financial crisis about whether the Fed should keep interest rates low, uh, which whether it should expand the money supply uh, in order to uh, keep the economy. Afloat to, to you know to put more money in the economy so that it's out there to be spent by people and uh, you know, there there are people who are warning that we we're going to experience hyperinflation at any moment right. that the consumer prices right. were going to just go go crazy because the Fed was printing trillions of dollars. This was the fear uh, four or five years ago. I mean, it was almost a certainty in some circles that we would experience this spiraling inflation. Right. People were talking about uh, what happened in uh, Weimar Germany you know, prior <laughs> to the rise of Hitler. For yes. God's sake. and look, I, I do think it is the case. That uh, the stock markets, I don't think you can divorce the stock market's performance over the last decade from the fact that the Fed is printing a lot of money. I think part of its operations are reflected in higher stock prices. That's a form of inflation, it's stock price inflation. But the idea that we were going to have out of control consumer, um, consumer inflation was just always kooky uh, and, and just reflected a super simplistic and bizarre theory of how, of how money works. Um, so you're saying those commercials on Fox News about uh, the importance of buying gold uh, <laughs> might be might be a little. Uh, so I should all those gold reserves I've purchased over the past five years were probably not necessary. But is what you're well, well, here's the thing. <laughs> Actually, what I'm telling you is that I think the way people think about the stock market is not too different from the way people think about gold. Um, and 
gold prices, uh, it's actually been a while since I checked on gold prices, but at least for a while, they were actually going up a lot. Gold prices were... According to zombie Wilford Brimley, <laughs> yeah. uh, the, gold is always a safe investment. Yeah, that's the... Take it from like, me. That's not true. Okay. <laughs> People should not take take investment advice from Fox News TV. Uh, who, whoever they have people hawking gold over on Fox News nowadays, I don't know. They dug up uh, the, the you know Bob Hope. Bob Hope's uh, corpse is right. hawking gold over there. So. But but the important thing about about the stock market is that it, it actually does behave a lot like the market market for gold for gold prices. There was no real reason for gold to go up over the at least the first few years after the crisis, but it really did. It kept going up and up and up. And I don't know, maybe I haven't followed in a while. It may have gone down since then, but it it didn't go up because people really believed that gold was a good hedge against inflation. Or that it was a you know a, a safe asset alternative to the U.S. dollar. I mean, if the U.S. dollar literally collapses and disappears, that is a sign that the government of the United States has lost the full faith of the general public, and you just have you have problems that are not reflected in currency prices that cannot be salvaged by by holdings of precious metals. <laughs> Uh, so maybe that's maybe that's where the turn to survivalism comes right, from. Right, right. Mean, buying gold isn't safe enough. You need to bury canned goods in your backyard and, and store weapons. Yeah, I mean, right? exactly. You, you. It's <laughs> not a good. If, if, if it, There's a logic there, right? <laughs> if, if if the full faith and trust of the American banking system goes down, your gold is not going to save you. Exactly, else. exactly. <laughs> and so you can't eat it, you know. And and yeah, so the. But but there is this idea out there. Um, that gold is a good hedge against inflation, even though the traders of the stuff don't actually believe in it for the most part. They know that that idea is out there. And so when people start talking about inflation, traders will bid up the price of gold, expecting other people to think that the price of gold should increase because of uh, I because see. Of this we're, idea. we're coming full circle now. We're talking Keynes and uh, financial markets. Exactly what what we what we open the show with now. So let's talk about that uh, that uh, loose connection or lack thereof between like an asset price and an asset or an asset value because uh, that's that's really interesting. Right. So let's say you're Corporation X and you know you make you know cinnamon buns for. Uh, you know, people who like to eat sugary baked goods, and uh, and you you haven't eaten lunch yet either. Have you? <laughs> I also don't. I don't know why I'm thinking. About I'm dreaming about things. cinnamon buns myself. <laughs> anyway, yeah, go ahead. It's like the one sweet I actually do really like. I, I don't have a sweet oh, tooth, but God. anyway, uh, let's say you you're, you sell a lot of cinnamon buns one quarter, and your earnings come in unexpectedly high. Wall Street thought you were going to make three dollars a share. Instead, you made $4 a share, which is a, a funny metric because it's not like when you make these earnings, they, they just automatically get divided up among the shareholders. They, they don't. You, you, just, you have a pot of money, and there are also people who you don't even know who are buying and selling your stock independently of your operations. It is conventional on Wall Street for people to say, wow, that quarter was better than I thought it was. Uh, we should bid up the price of this company's stock now, even if that quarter's earnings don't really reflect anything different about the fundamentals of, of the business. If, if you, know, you need a lot of debt to run uh, your cinnabon, cinnamon bun factory or if you need you know, the best cinnamon bun bakers or whatever, um, you just had a good quarter. Um, the stock price just goes up. And then after it goes up, people look around and say, well, has it gone up far enough or is it, gone up, is it going to go up any further? They're not playing to the information. They're playing – to other traders, playing to other traders, reacting 
from the information. So the actual bid that's happening on the stock price is essentially a set of strange social conventions uh, among among stock traders and, and professional traders. So let me ask you, what do you what do you make of the Warren Buffetts of the world? These uh these, you know, self-congratulatory assholes who write these books about, uh, you know, their success uh, gambling on the markets is uh, tied to the quote-unquote fundamentals of the business that they're assessing. Well, I've never met Warren Buffett, so I, uh, I, I don't have anything to say about his personal character. Uh, but, I, you know, with, with Warren Buffett, there was a, a, a very good biography written about him a few years ago. It pointed out that the way that he made his fortune um, – really looks like what we would now consider to be insider trading, um, that he would get information about companies and how they're going to perform uh, before other people would. And then he would he would bet on the stock price accordingly. And with this infra- inside information, uh, you know, this, he would be able to get gains other people couldn't get. He also, in the days before uh, Internet accessible uh, SEC filings, would have people in Washington just waiting around to see the SEC filings on paper as soon as they were printed out. Uh, and when you, have, when you don't have equal access to those filings through the Internet, people who look at those early and get an early peek you know, will be able to, to sort of game the market's response more accurately than, um, you know, than, than, than other people. Um, so I, I think Warren Buffett did a lot of smart things, for instance, <laughs> to, to get ahead. But, uh, <laughs> but you know whether they were ethical or not is another. Yeah, question. They, they, they don't really say anything about. Um, you know, look, it was clever, but it, it's it's you know the guy invests in Coca Cola and credit rating agencies. Like these are not important things that have made the world, uh, you know, a, a, a better place or improved efficiency. I mean, they, they they give people diabetes and they they sign off on financial crises like the, <laughs> the fact that he's made a lot of money doesn't mean that um, the way he's made this money is is laudable or or particularly insightful um, right so even when these earnings what I, what I'm trying to get to is even when these earnings reports uh, come out from these companies right and you always see ah uh, this uh, you know uh, this Cinnabon Cinnabon company mm. sorry that's trademarked isn't it uh, don't sue yeah, me bro right. <laughs> this this Cinnamon Bun uh, corporation just released their quarterly earnings report and their fundamentals seem secure and so in a, in essence they're not really judging the company based on their fundamentals they're judging how other people might judge the company based yes, on its fundamentals. There, would that be would that be a correct? There's a line from um, it's actually a whole paragraph in in the general theory of employment, interest, and money by the great economist John Maynard Keynes, where he says what he compares uh, stock market decisions and professional investment to these old beauty contests that existed in newspapers at the time and. It, I, I tried to put this in a story I wrote for HuffPost, but my editor cut it because she was like, "Nobody has these competitions anymore. No one will know what you're talking." There's no context for yeah. that. It's like it's like when your your great great grandfather's like, "It was 1912. We were at the World's <laughs> Fair, yeah, right? Chicago. There she was. We met eyes across the room. You're like it's just it's kind of like a charming, but you're also kind of like, what world yeah, was that? Very strange. Yeah. Well, so apparently, newspapers yeah. used to have these competitions where uh, participants in the competition would be given like a dozen photos or something of, of different women and then asked to pick which, which face was going to be deemed to be the prettiest by the participants in, in the competition. And so Kane says, you know, nobody involved in the competition is just, it's not like they're picking who they think the prettiest face is. And then after everybody gets the ballots and they judge uh, who the prettiest one is, they're all guessing 
who other people think it's going to be. So, so the the analogy here, you know, it's 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 not a very me too kind of. Um, it's not very metaphor. woke, right? Right. Uh, it's not very woke, but but it, but it is it is a useful metaphor. When when people yeah. bid on stock prices, they're not they're not saying this is what I really think the company is worth based on my expert analysis about you know interest rates, costs, and and revenues. It is it is a guess about what they think other people are going to going to bid so that they can turn a profit off of these other people. And everybody else is making the exact same bid. So you have the same process of analysis going on two or three times removed from the actual operations of the company. And all, all this just means that when the stock market moves around, I mean, we can predict that when the Fed raises interest rates, typically the stock market declines. That happens on a pretty regular basis. Uh, and and you know, it appears to be happening right now. But it doesn't mean that the stock market is responding to something real that's happening in the economy. It doesn't mean that there are that there are significant actual events that are taking place out there in the real world that the market is responding to. But I think it is significant that people believe that the stock market's movement has something to do with real effects. Like you were saying before, corporate executives get paid according to their share prices. Uh, and and people in corporate America have because they accept this sort of shareholder value doctrine about how capitalism is supposed to work. You know they 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 look at a declining stock market and say, oh well, there must be something wrong, and so they may not invest in new equipment or buy a new factory. Or uh, if you're a banker, you might choose not to extend loans to a totally healthy company um, that needs credit because you just think, hey, the economy is probably slumping soon. The stock market is declining. Even if that stock market movement has nothing to do with what's actually going on in the real world, right? And, and, and to be clear, the CEO and the uh, higher the senior executives will do whatever it takes to to keep or increase that uh, that stock price because that's how they justify uh, their job to their boards of directors. If, if I'm not mistaken, there. So there's also kind of a structural imperative to 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 do whatever it takes, whether it's stock price or stock buybacks or or these other types of shenanigans that go on at those levels uh, to keep those prices inflated. Would, would you, you agree with that? Is that correct? Oh, I, no, I, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the uh, part of the enthusiasm in the stock market for over the last six months or so has been predicated on the idea that uh, President Trump and the Republican Congress were going to uh, implement a very hefty corporate tax cut, which was going to leave companies with large amounts of cash on hand that they could spend buying back their their stock, which would in turn drive up stock prices, and so, uh, so people were trying to get in before before that uh, bump, right, uh, right. took effect. And and you're going to see companies buying up lots of shares of their own stock to keep the to keep the stock price up. I mean that 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 operation. with that massive uh, tax uh, break that they all just got. That's fantastic. I love that. <laughs> Take it from the poor people, give it to the rich, and they'll just buy their stock back. This is a fantastic system that we live in. So let's let's end. On, let's end on this note. Uh, there are a lot of the re- early reports that came out about uh, this crash uh, that uh, Wall Street experienced this past week. Uh, folks claim it was a direct result of the wage increases uh, that that have been recently reported. Uh, is there any truth to that? And uh, why would Wall Street tank uh, after hearing news that wages are going up? So I will. My own personal view here is that that is not. That it, it is not accurate to say that Wall Street crashed because of inflation data. Uh, I think there is a general feeling among a lot of people who are professional traders and economists that the markets 
a little bit out of whack with where they think it should be. That the I, I you know like I've said before, I don't believe that there is you know this this metaphysically true real place where the stock market is accurately reflecting the real economy. But but people, I think there's a general feeling that the stock market is still nevertheless too high. So the market is looking for a reason to pull back. And so when you see inflation data come in with wages coming up, the, the, the idea is that because workers are getting paid more money, they will have more money to spend on goods. They will be able to bid up the price of goods. And so inflation will come and then eventually the economy will be bad because inflation is not good. Um, this is the thinking process. Um, I think it's really silly to attribute that type of reasoning uh, to to large immediate swings in the stock market, because even if we did see inflation happening, I mean, it would be this is something that would be several months, if not years away. Uh, even if you were seeing data reflected uh, right now about slightly higher worker wages. Um, mm-hmm. That said, if this is a reason why people, traders in the market, are, are deciding to pull back or to sell, I mean, just think about how bad that is. I mean, that suggests right, right, that right, right. right now. Um, this is about as good as the economy can ever get. <laughs> this is paradise. Uh, and it just seemed, it just strikes me as deeply, deeply troubling that in the richest country, in the history of rich countries, uh, we could have, you know, 40 million people living in like, real legit poverty. Um, right. and, and, and that's, that's considered, that considered paradise. And, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to look to market analysis for this. I mean, um, you mentioned Paul Krugman earlier. He had a, he had a column um, just this week where he was, he was saying, you know, look, Republicans need to be getting more aggressive about the deficit. Instead, they're spending more money. You should you should cut the deficit at uh, at the peak and spend money at the at the at the slump at the at the bottom. And you know, for for Krugman's sort of um, fiscal worldview, I think he's he's correct. I, I don't really share his worldview, um, but. That means that you know he's saying this is this is as good as things are going to get, uh, and that's I think that's pretty troubling. Um, it's very troubling. There's two correlates. So the 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 this kind of view uh, was out uh, from Vice, uh, Vice.com a writer there, Matt Taylor, and uh, on February sixth, kind of got out ahead of the curve, I think, in some senses, and made the proclamation. Uh, it says the stock market tanked because capitalism is totally broken. <laughs> Wages were trending up. So naturally, investors panicked, and you know that to me is it's a it's a really powerful moral condemnation of Wall Street and this system of uh, kind of like uh, speculative finance that we have. Uh, these these fat cats are are wasting away their tax breaks and gambling on our four hundred one ks and all the rest of it. And there's something very powerful to that. But I think uh, a, an unfortunate correlate to that kind of accusation is that there is actually a real connection between the productive sector and Wall Street. And and you seem to be arguing otherwise. And I think that's a really valuable insight because, uh, you know, a lot of people, when, when we throw around ideas about socializing finance and public investment, public forms of banking, uh, uh, democratizing uh, the decisions that we make when it comes to, you know, where we're going to invest public money, uh, one of the immediate responses is, well, Wall Street, mm-hmm. you know, they, they will never let this happen. Uh, it can't happen. But if, yeah, it seems to me you have to make the argument that there is this, there is kind of a, I don't want to say it's a, it's a speculative illusion because it has real impacts on, on the productive sector and so on. But you do have to sort of emphasize this kind of disconnected uh, relationship that, that you're emphasizing. What do you make of that? 
Well, I mean, illusions can be very powerful. So if, if everybody believes something that's wrong and behaves accordingly, you know, you, you could get um, the, the same, similar results to if the thing were actually true. So I, I mean, I think that, that's, that's part of what's happening. I mean, I also think it's just, it's important to remember the, the idea of connecting the well-being of society to the productive you know, capacity or output or endeavors of, of its people is not, not a bad one. I mean, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about business or we're talking about enterprise. We're just talking about what people do when they go out to work. They make things. And when you make lots of stuff, because there's lots of stuff to do, but there's lots of people who want to buy that stuff, uh, you know, you're creating, you're creating wealth. It's, it's a political choice to decide that the fruits of that wealth should go to people who speculate on stocks for a living. I mean, you could tie the productive, you know, like right now, you, you know, I think even though only about, you know, I think, I think the top 10 richest 10% of households own something like 90% of the stocks, maybe 85%. So it's including retirement accounts and 401ks and all of that, you know, instead of asking people to spend surplus income on stocks, you could just, you could just say, okay, Corporations have to pay a special dividend um, into a retirement fund for everybody, and right, you right. could call that dividend a tax. <laughs> like this, it makes sense to say, okay, this is this is the way that we are making stuff in our in our economy. Let's make sure that the fruits of this stuff are are, are shared more broadly. Um, it, it's a choice to say, well, ownership gets certain benefits uh, instead of um, you know other types of stakeholders in in the enterprise of of producing things production right i think what in, in you, that there's a troubling sort of correlate from this idea that rising wages uh, necessarily crash wall street and that's a bad thing uh, because that sort of uh, it continues this mythology of the i don't know what you might call the wall street referendum Mm-hmm. Right. That Wall Street will always necessarily, uh, you know, respond negatively to uh, social democratic reforms for anyone who comes into office, say a Bernie Sanders figure. Right. Well, Wall Street, you know what's going to happen when Wall Street, you know, when Bernie Sanders becomes president, Wall Street's not going to like that. And I think like the lesson here is who gives a shit? Yeah, right. Like, I don't think that's wrong. Who gives a shit? Like, <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't think we, it's, we, 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 you know, it's not wrong. Right. Yeah. So go on. Continue no, you, you, like, like it. It was true that when Trump got elected, the stock market went up. And I think it is true that if Bernie Sanders had been elected, the stock market would have gone down. Yeah. And I, I, I think it's kind of silly that you would hinge your national fortune and sort of sense of, of, of well-being on movements that are just sort of arbitrary hunches. Uh, well, they've they've got a gun to our uh, collective heads here. Wall Street does, you know, and it's like I don't know. Maybe it's like well, it's like a speed, you know, uh, shoot the hostage moment, right? Where where we need to temporarily accept the hit from Wall Street so that we can, uh, you know, found a more rational, more democratically oriented uh, form of, of of social investment, one that's not uh, sort of uh, uh, held hostage by these uh, Wall Street uh, Wall Street speculators. Yeah, no, I, I just I just think the the idea that. I think mean, Keynes says this in the same chapter. It's chapter twelve of general theory, where he's talking about beauty contests. He, he just says, you know, the idea that we're going to we're going to have an efficient or effective, uh, you know, pricing and allocation of capital investment by attaching it to a casino um, is just incredibly implausible. <laughs> and, and he knows he was a speculator himself. I mean, he lost yeah. money 
uh, a couple of times, made an enormous amount of money at other times. Uh, he was well connected. He he bailed himself out uh, personally on a couple of occasions, which hey, good for him. Uh, yeah, I mean, but he, uh, he, he a hungry Keynes is not a productive Keynes, and I think we're all better for his uh, productivity. <laughs> a lot of Marxists are quick to point out the class privilege of Keynes and and try to denounce him on that basis. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's, he's interesting. I mean, because he, he he definitely is allied um, socially with the. Yeah, he's an aristocrat, the, but he's, he's not really an aristocrat. I mean, he's he's the son of an academic from. Um, from Cambridge, he's somebody who who wants to be accepted by the aristocracy, but himself is not actually from it. Um, there, there are interesting social pressures with how, the way he sort of tries to be one of the gang. Um, but he, he really, it, I don't think it's accurate to say that he's he's you know one of these blue blood you know British elites. Uh, he, he's he's trying to fit in with them. Uh, but he's not quite there. But he's, he's pushing back when he can. So I'm. Th- this is this is interesting. I'm really looking forward to your uh, new biography of John Maynard Keynes. It's going to come out from Random House uh, next fall or winter, as those things often gets push get pushed back. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Maybe I'll bring you back on the show to talk about that biography. I think Keynes is a is a really important figure, and he will continue to be. Uh, should this kind of uh, you know quasi social democratic shift in on the American political scene continue, we'll be talking a lot about the role of finance and. Uh, you know, supply side versus Keynesian uh, economics uh, in, in the years to come. So, uh, yeah, I've got to let you go. Uh, we've both, you've got some things to do. Uh, I'm sure you're uh, in high demand right now with the, with the, uh, the Wall Street shenanigans that have been going on. Uh, but yeah, lots to talk about. I hope we covered everything for our listeners and to your satisfaction. But Zach Carter, thanks for coming on to the Dead Pundit Society. Thanks so much for having me, Adam. And that is the show for this week. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Thanks again to Zach Carter. I learned a lot from this episode. He's a really he's a really knowledgeable guy. Like I said, this is a bit of a departure from the norm at Dead Punnett Society. Uh, he's not a stale, stodgy Marxist. He is pragmatically oriented in, uh, you know, the, the messy and shitty world of finance today. And I hope that we teased out some really important insights for all of you to begin thinking about the implications of finance on socialist policy and socialist movements today. This stuff may seem like abstruse, abstract theory, but it is not, my friends. It has some really serious implications on our political work. And this is uh, part one, as I said, of my two-part series. Uh, Part two is going to be coming up either next week or the week after. And joining me there is uh, Mike Beggs, political economist at the University of Sydney in Australia. We're going to be talking more explicitly about finance versus socialist transformation, and you're not going to want to miss that. A lot of really great stuff to come. Check me out on patreon.com slash deadpundit. Subscribe at five bucks a month. You know the drill. Find me on Twitter at deadpundits. Be nice or get blocked. No shit posters allowed over here on Dead Pundit Society land. Anyway, lots of great stuff coming your way. Thanks so much for tuning in, and here is a little more from the Twin Peaks soundtrack to play out. Same time, same place next week. Dead Pundit.